Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Good morning? You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away! Let me speak for the love of God! You see, it all starts with a baby, we'll say, at the age of six months. And the mother says, boo! And scares the hell out of the baby, gives it the hiccups. And then the baby giggles. There's its first moment of fear. Later on, it's on a swing, getting higher and higher, and catching its breath when it goes too high. And so it goes. We all enjoy, shall we say, putting our toe in the cold water of fear. <laughs> Very good morning to you. I hope you're well and you are listening to Good Movie Monday. This is the episode with a big fat hitch. Yep, it's time to perv on your neighbours, take a hot shower and all gather around the tea chest because it's our Alfred Hitchcock special. Why? Well, because this Wednesday, April 29th, marks the 40th anniversary of Hitchcock's passing. He was 80 years old at the time. And before we get stuck into all of that stuff, just as he is every week, my cohort and co-host, Keith Schultz, is across the desk from me. Hey, mate, how's it going? It's going very well, man. Are you, how, how are you feeling about this episode? Uh, I'm feeling slightly enthused. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe even more than I am. Indeed. I'm, I'm sort of a little bit trepidatious about this one. Yeah, I'm ready to go. So let us celebrate the work of the man who is arguably the greatest director of all time, possibly the most influential and certainly the grandfather of modern suspense. Absolutely. There's an old expression which says, all work and no play makes Jack. <laughs> well, we may be film geeks and cinephiles, but we are far from Hitchcock experts. Well, at least I am. Uh, so before we begin talking our way through all of his work, let it be known that we're just two guys who love Hitchcock films, and we're only going to talk about the extent of our knowledge, what we've researched, what we know. That's we're right. not going to play pretentious here. So no. we're hoping that this plays out more as a loving testament to the great man rather than an in-depth examination. And with that, Hitchcock's career is broken down into five phases. To be honest with you, I only thought there were three. Mm. You know, but yeah. I was, you know, what do I know? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so they are. They've got the interwar years, which was 1919 to 39. The early years in Hollywood, which was 39 to 45. The post-war Hollywood years, 45 to 53. The peak years, 54 to 64. And the latter years, 66. Actually, 65 to 1980. Yeah. So we'll probably gloss over those first couple. Uh, yeah. Let me be honest, you know, it's safe to say that neither of us have really gone in depth with his silent stuff. No. No, I one or two, but it hasn't been a major focus of mine, certainly. Yeah, same with me. I mean, that's not to say I haven't seen you know some of those, but aside from appreciating them as important sort of documents and archives, I don't take a great amount of pleasure from silent films. No, neither do I. Yeah, they're interesting for from a historical point of view, but their entertainment value is probably yeah. is kind of low. I just can't engage. No, that's right. <laughs> anyway, so before we launch into his huge catalogue of work, let's talk about what the great man means to us. Keith, what are your earliest memories? My earliest memories? I remember uh, when I was about seven or eight going to the library and hiring Rear Window and North by Northwest on video. I can't quite remember why I hired him. Maybe it's just my inbuilt taste. Did you know his <laughs> name at the time? No, I don't think so. I definitely became aware of him after uh, the films. I remember having Foxtel and seeing like a TV One, remember that channel, yeah, uh, doco on him, yeah. But and I was already, but I'd already seen those two films. So I had a bit of reference point for him. But I remember watching those two films about seven or eight, and loving them. Like I, knew, I was remember being thinking that they were old films, but they felt very contemporary. They were very thrilling. Mm. So I remember being very engaged. So they yeah. seemed kind of timeless. 
I think I was about the same age when I got yeah. when I discovered him, I guess. And it all com- always comes down to my mother. She exposed me to all these things. But I think yeah. Dial M for Murder was my first taste. Oh, wow. And what I remember the most about that one was, because that was a 3D film. So it was, yeah. They, there was that scene with the iconic scene with the giant finger that goes onto the rotary phone. Mm. Um, that image, I knew there was something not quite right about it even yeah. as a kid. I appreciate it much more as an adult. But I think that's my first taste of it. It was... Bill Collins, do you remember that film? Oh, critic? Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, well, he used to present the Golden Years of Hollywood, and I'd watch that every single week. Yeah, love Bill. Yeah, and you know, and then obviously he would introduce me to stuff like Rear Window and and all the others and Frenzy and things like that. Yeah. So that's where I sort of tapped in, and and then from there on it was self discovery all the way. I still remember Bill's Psycho review. That's funny. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I think I remember his frenzy review. Yeah, wow. Well. Do you know how Bill used to get when things got a bit too naughty? Indeed. Yeah, so <laughs> I think he, I think he used to warn the parents to get the kids out of the room. Ooh, at that's the time. right. Absolutely for that one. Oh, yeah. anyway, let's breeze over those early years in just a moment. But first, we better check in with Jarrett. See what's coming out on Home Entertainment this week. It's a big one. G'day, this is Reginald, and I'm here with this week's PE class because Jarrett couldn't be here. I believe he's uh, in lockdown at his house and just had better things to do. So they've got me in to do this, and I've got a lot of time on my hands. That's not all I've got on my hands, but I've got time. And that's because I lost my job recently. I used to work at the high school. I was a PE instructor, PE being physical education, not physical entertainment, as Jarrett might tell you. Anyway, they thought I got a little bit too physical with the boys, and uh, they gave me early retirement. So I've got a bit of time before I'm due to appear in court. So I figured I'd tell you what's happening in the world of physical entertainment. And uh, that's The Elephant Man. He's coming to 4K Ultra HD, that's right. And Blu-ray also. They've done a stunning new 4K transfer of the film. So you can see John Merrick in all his infinite ugly glory. Uh, And that's a David Lynch film, if you didn't know about that. New transfer and a bunch of new featurettes as well. So get into The Elephant Man. I know I would if Michael Jackson didn't have all his bones. Anyway, moving on. Universal Sony Home Entertainment. What are they releasing this week? Well, they've got Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, which is a beautiful story of Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers, who's a man who likes to entertain children, much like myself, except he does it in a different way. I'm not casting any accusations toward Mr. Rogers at all. But anyway, he's got a Blu-ray and DVD coming out. Not like the US, they've got a 4K Ultra HD coming out, but that's those bloody yanks for you. Anyway, the Blu-ray and DVD have got some deleted scenes, a blooper reel, four featurettes, and an audio commentary. But what we really need to get excited about is the release of Cats on Blu-ray and DVD. In fact, there's an audio commentary with the director and 11 featurettes. Unfortunately, it will not include the alternate cut of the movie, the butthole cut that everyone's talking about. God knows I'd love to see Idris Elba's butthole in the uh, butthole cut, but um, the the movie gods aren't going to allow it. Anyway, Bad Boys for Life also coming out. That's coming out in 4K, Ultra HD, Blu-ray and DVD. I've known some bad boys in my time. You've got to throw them over your lap and you give them the old one, two, three. Anyway, moving on. That one's got extended and deleted scenes, outtakes and bloopers and a couple featurettes. It's also got a DTSX soundtrack for whatever that means, I don't know. Then Doolittle. I don't know anyone that saw Doolittle except for Glenn Cochran. He saw it. He saw it at the movies and he didn't like it. And uh, it's got six featurettes on it. And uh, but get this, they're releasing on 4K. Why? Nobody saw it. No one gives a hoot. Anyway, they're releasing on 4K, Blu-ray and DVD. It's got a Dolby Atmos track, so maybe there is some saving grace to that. Anyway, do little, maybe I'll pick it up. It might be a good one to get some of the, you know, neighbourhood kids around to watch a movie with me um, on a Sunday Arvo. Anyway, moving on, there's Sweetheart that's coming out, and that's on DVD only. That's one of those Blumhouse micro-budgeted, Uh, horror films and it's definitely worth checking out I know I took a shit in my undies when I saw it I mean moving on Roadshow Roadshow they're releasing Midway Uh, War Movie I can't confirm what's happening with that one with regards to special features or a soundtrack because no one from Roadshow got back to me you'd think they're going out of business it's crazy anyway that's enough from me this week oh no I do have one more tidbit of news and that is that uh, you know how I think I think Jared's mentioned it before Top Gun's coming out on the 4K Ultra HD in early June. Well, they're actually going to release a couple more Tom Cruise films. That's correct. They are going to release Days of Thunder on 4K so you can get a bit of cold trickle in Ultra HD. That's given me a bit of a trickle right now. And also War of the Worlds, if you're into that sort of thing. Glenn Cochran, I know you love it. Anyway, that's it for me. You probably won't hear from me again because I'm due to appear in court on Monday and it's not looking good. 
So anyway, look after yourself, stay safe, don't forget to wash your dick because I won't be there to do it for you anymore. And remember, always stay physical. Do you dream vividly? Uh, reasonably so, yes. I've, I've, uh, I think that's almost the basis of one's work, is um, the making of nightmares with as much realism as you can. So the guys actually asked me to share a few thoughts on Alfred Hitchcock, so I thought I'd talk about how I discovered Hitchcock, and that was actually a roundabout way. It was through a 1984 documentary called Terror in the Isles that I saw on uh, home video when it came out. And that was basically a... It was It's more of a clip show, I'd say, than it were a documentary as such. And it was clips from, you know, horror films over the years, predominantly horror films from the 70s and 80s. And uh, it was interspersed with some, you know, sort of commentary from Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen. And it was a bit of a childhood favourite for me. And because they didn't tell you what film the clips were from, I would have to wait until the closing credits to sort of scroll through and have a look and try and work out where that sort of sat with the imagery I saw. Or if I didn't recognize an actor, then I would have to consult my horror encyclopedias. Or Anyway, it took a long time to work out what scenes are from what film. Uh, in any case, I discovered that Psycho was psycho because it turned up on a saturday night uh bill collins special when he used to do his you know golden years of hollywood and do a double feature on on tv i think it was channel 10 and uh that's when i first saw psycho and i'm like oh my god it's that movie from terror in the isles and i was really excited to watch it and my mum watched it with me which was cool because we didn't watch a lot of movies you know genre sort of film be it thriller or horror together she was more into dramas or comedies and i'd watch more of the horror and thriller with my old man uh, so we watched that together and it was terrific and that kind of ignited my interest in Alfred Hitchcock as a filmmaker. So I started trying to track down more and more Alfred Hitchcock films, be it whether they were broadcast on TV or whether at the video store. And I think I think the second Alfred Hitchcock film I saw was like The Birds and then the third one would have been Frenzy, which was really unusual because it was far more sort of uh, European sensibility about it than it were a traditional Hitchcock. It was quite salacious and that led on to you know, numerous other Hitchcock films throughout the years and I think by the time I was in university, you know, we ended up covering Hitchcock in uni, which was really, really cool. Uh, and since then, you know, um, there's been the occasional Blu-ray release of a Hitchcock film, whether it's been through Universal Pictures or Criterion. Uh, and I've picked them all up because I love revisiting them. You know, there was a little tradition my wife and I had going there for, I think, two Christmases. And it was something I had hoped that we would continue. But unfortunately, you know, we have, uh, I have family to stay and that required us to go interstate to visit them. And they weren't so keen on continuing that tradition of watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie uh, on Christmas afternoon. In any case, uh, yeah, Hitchcock has remained definitely one of my favourite filmmakers, definitely one of the most consistent and original filmmakers out there. And I think he was what made me like thrillers so much and sort of cross over from horror to thriller and see that connection, you know, the, the use of suspense and all these other elements. I think, yeah, I think he's responsible for my, my love of thrillers. And I mean, that's carried through to current day, whether it's a you know, TV miniseries, you know, um, like a board church sort of thing, or whether it's a, a new movie like Girl on the Train, or whether it's one of the erotic 90s thrillers like um, Jade or Basic Instinct or something like that. I love thrillers, you know, or whether it's something super clever like David Mamet or something, you know, like House of Cards. But, um, yeah, I can definitely attribute that all to Alfred Hitchcock. But, yeah, that's just my thoughts. That's how I came about discovering Alfred Hitchcock. Did you hear that, Keith? Cats is coming out this week. I oh, I've been anticipating this one. <laughs> Far out. Imagine if Hitchcock had directed yeah. Cats. Yeah, oh, gosh, <laughs> it's a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Midway too. Well, you know that ought to be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Did you see Midway? I didn't. Oh, I didn't. And so there's a sequel. Fascinating. <laughs> oh, sorry. You said Midway too. <laughs> No, Midway to, 2 is in oh, my yeah, yeah, That's right. Let's do it. Okay. I wonder we, what story that would be. We need to do that. Yeah, I was going to say, who made a sequel of that? Keith is trying to say, let's do yeah. that again, but <laughs> I reckon right. I'm going to leave that in. 
He's throwing me under the bus here. Anyway, uh, back to the theme of the episode. Indeed. Let's talk about the interwar years, 1919 to 1939. I mean, how's this for incredible? He worked on 18 films even before his directorial debut. Amazing. That was 1925 as the first actual film he made. Wow. So that's incredible. He apparently responded to an advertisement in the newspaper for a London-based production arm of Paramount Pictures. <laughs> It was called the famous Las- the famous players Lasky. It's so, an odd name. That's an easy way to get into it, eh? And he was a title designer for most of those eighteen films. He was actually yeah. directed two of them, which have been lost. So mm. even before his debut, which was the Pleasure Garden, mm. he'd made two others. Amazing. That got yeah. lost. Yeah, is, it's staggering. I isn't don't it? know. I mean. If you're a cinephile listening to this, that is incredible. Oh, it's his lost Hitchcock movies. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, so the first film he did make was The Pleasure Garden. Last week, I actually bookended my little Hitchcock journey and I watched the first film he ever made, Pleasure Garden, and the last one he ever made, which was Family Plot. Yeah. And what an interesting journey that it was. It would have been. So I haven't seen either of those and I'll get into why. But. Yeah, well, The Pleasure Garden, it's a silent film, obviously. It opens with... A spiral staircase, mm. which is a reference and a motif that he uses all the way through his career. Yeah, absolutely. Love and I that. think somewhere in the opening credits, maybe of um, Frenzy, which is the one he did before Family Plot, he did a spiral yeah. kind of imagery and shit like that. Yeah. So it just fascinates oh, yeah. me. Interesting thing between those two films, though, Family Plot and uh, The Pleasure Garden, is his little um, commentary on religion. Mm. I found okay. very fascinating. So in The Pleasure Garden, there's a scene where... One of the women, stars two women, kneels down to pray before she goes to bed. Mm. And the other woman is looking at her in a bit of disbelief. Like, what is she doing? And for its time, in 1925, that is quite edgy. Yeah, it would have been edgy. Yeah. And then you've got, all the way back to family plot, you've got the arrest of a priest in a church in front of a, a mass. Mm. And, you know, the way he sh- shoots that is very... I don't know what he's trying to say with yeah. his, his religious overtones he's, and he's making making a comment. <laughs> yeah, it, but I just found it interesting that he would sort of start a film with that because it's within the first five minutes. Yeah, and then end a film like his career with a similar yeah, commentary. That's strange, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I'm going to run off a list of these films that he made. This is a, this is the longest list I think of the films he's made in a block. Yeah. So you got the Pleasure Garden, the Mountain Edge, which has been lost, the Lodger, which was uh, the first time he made a cameo in a film, the Ring, Downhill. The Farmer's Wife, Easy Virtue, which was remade. Yeah. Uh, Champagne and The Manx Man. Now, they're his silent films. Yeah. Then he made the first British talkie with Blackmail, which came two years after the first American talkie. Uh, then he made An Elastic Affair, uh, L Street Calling, Juno and the Pay Cook. <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> Murder, The Skin Game, Mary, Rich and Strange, The Number 17, Waltzes from Vienna, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which he remade himself, Yeah, The 39 Steps, Secret Agent, Sabotage, Young and Innocent, The Lady Vanishes, and Jamaica Inn. Mm. That's incredible. So yeah. I think those last sort of five or six, we're starting to get iconic. Yeah, they're famous. I don't know. The, I believe The Lady Vanishes is the film that sort of made him internationally famous. It's uh, the one that had Hollywood knocking yeah, on knocking the door. knocking on the door. And then obviously The 39 Steps. In 1939, I believe. Well, I think, you know, look, you go back, The Man Who Knew Too Much, obviously that's an iconic name to us. We Absolutely. All, we all know that name and then 39 Steps, Secret Agent, Sabotage. He's really starting to brand himself. Yeah, absolutely. The hitched name is starting to be associated with, you know, espionage and murder. Yeah. Now, interestingly, a lot of those films, well, most of them were made in Germany, mm. whereas, which is where that production company moved to. And whilst in Germany, this is what I find fascinating. He worked alongside the legendary um, F.W. Morno, mm. who made um, Nosferatu. Yeah, and Sunrise, yeah. I believe, yeah. And the film that they worked on together was called The Last Laugh in 1926. Wow. And Hitchcock cites him as one of his most major influences, and yeah. he borrowed a lot of the style from. Yeah. And if you go back and watch his films, Morno's films, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can definitely see that interesting juxtaposition yeah. between the two of them, particularly the silent films of Hitchcock. That's interesting. The way he uses black and whites, you know, yeah. it's the, it's not just black and white; it's all shadows and shades. Yeah, and, that, yeah. that German, yeah, that style from that era—that's fascinating. Well, what's yeah. interesting with Hitchcock, even if you watch his talkie films, they still have a you can watch them on mute and kind of still get what's going on, can't yeah. you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen all of those films. I don't really have much interest in going back through the silent ones, only for the practice of doing the book ending. Yeah. Although Murder, which is one of the earlier talky ones, that's a good film. I that one is very contemporary in its sort of yeah. style. Yeah, okay. I don't know if I've seen that one. Yeah, I've seen The Lodger. It mainly, I think it mainly takes place in a jail. Yeah, okay. Murder. Um, yeah, 
It's been about ten years since I've watched that. I know that's one of from that era. That's one of his sort of more um, renowned films. Yeah. Looking back, mm. uh, I know, and I've seen The Lodger, which I think is the film that made him famous in England, with Ivan Novello of all people starring. I've seen that just purely out of interest. It was on ABC late one night, you know, when I was a youngster. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'd say you're right. Like Murders and Known uh, One, but I, uh, yeah, I'm no expert on this particular era of his. You know. Well, if that's the case, let's move on. Yeah, let's let's push on. Hi, I'm Andrew Mike Doyle, serial toilet paper hoarder and host of Remotely Funny, the quarantined comedy show. Each week during isolation, we're bringing you the best of Australian comedy direct from their homes straight to yours. Submissions are open for comedy acts to appear on the show and we'll be airing episodes each week on our dedicated YouTube channel. They'll be available to watch online after all our live screenings. See facebook.com forward slash remotely funny for all the details. Well, I once had an idea that I would like to open a film, say at the Covent Garden Opera or the Metropolitan or the Scala in Milan, and Maria Callas is on the stage singing an aria and her head is tilted upwards and she sees in a box way up a man approach the back of another man and stab him. She is just reaching a high note. (laughs) And the high note turns to a scream. And it's the highest note she's ever sung in her life. The result of which she gets a huge round of applause. All right, well, now we're creeping into those early Hollywood years from 1939 to 1945. How confident are you with this lot? I'm pretty confident. It gets pretty tasty here, I think. Yeah, there's only eight films in this block, and I have seen seven of those. Yeah. Uh, how in-depth I could go with my, <laughs> with my knowledge of them is another question. So, legendary film producer David Selznick offered... Uh, am I pronouncing that right? David Selznick. Yeah. yeah. So, he offered Hitchcock a seven-year contract in 1939, and then Hitch moved to Hollywood, and I guess the rest is... History. History, indeed. It wasn't actually a harmonious relationship. No. It was I, marred by like financial woes and constant tussles over creative control. I believe David was a handful. <laughs> and Hitch obviously probably was too. And, I, and, and Selznick often barted him off to other studios. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he made films for other studios in that era, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, I think he did throughout, but, which is incredible to think. Yeah. How disrespectful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the films are Rebecca, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. The only one. Yeah. Foreign Correspondent, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was his only actual screwball blatant comedy. Yeah. Uh, Suspicion, Saboteur, Saboteur. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt, which he considers to be his best film. Yes. Lifeboat, Spellbound, and then two short films. Yeah. That's quite a string of films. It's a pretty good run. It's, that's most people's peak right there, isn't it? Yeah. And I guess you could say like he was he was continuing to hone his craft. He hadn't quite landed as the Hitchcock that we all know. I agree. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, what, what a string of films. What's your favorite of that lot? Oh, do you know what? It used to be Rebecca. Oh, I think Rebecca's an amazing film. It's it's kind of it, it is amazing. It's that's the only film he made to win the Best Picture Oscar. Yeah. Um. I think Foreign Correspondent was nominated as well. Same year. I could be wrong there, but I think that was like a banner year for yeah, him. Back to back. Yeah. But I would say I would have to say probably Shadow of a Doubt would be my favourite out of those. I think that's the most Hitchcock film, if that yeah. makes sense. I, I love that film. I've always been amazed that he finds it his best. I think he just liked it. He's the, on the record a dozen loves times. Loves it. Yeah. I think, he, what does he say? He says that it's that idea of a picture-perfect American town and then evil coming into it yep. through Joseph Cotton. Great film, but I would say that's probably, that's the one out of that era that I revisit the most. You're what about right. you? Um, Lifeboat. Lifeboat's great, I yeah. I love Lifeboat. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's the least Hitchcock film in it my is. mind. Yeah, that's a fair call. Um, very controversial at the time for the way it portrayed sort of, you know, the Germans. And, Absolutely. Uh, I just, it's all, for those that don't know, it all takes place on a life raft. That's it, yeah. Yeah, the entire film. Yeah. Uh, and you've got a U-boat captain on there. Mm. Um, the dynamic between all of these characters just having to not only survive, but get along. Yeah. It's just riveting. It is. How's his cameo on that? He's on, on a newspaper. He's on a newspaper. <laughs> like, because he, he thought about being a dead body floating yeah. past 
which he also thought about doing in Frenzy. He never actually went ahead yeah, with that. He realised he probably couldn't. Fly. So he he actually <laughs> appears in a newspaper yeah. in a weight loss commercial. Yeah, that's right. Um, I can't remember the name of the weight loss product, no, but it appears again in I think it's Rope. He's yeah, on a okay. billboard in the background with the same product. Wow. See, I don't remember that one in yeah. Rope. There you go. That's cool. Because yeah. that is another film that's hard for him to cameo in. That's right. Otherwise, yeah. and we'll get to that in a little bit. So yeah, I definitely think Lifeboat. Um, Spellbound's pretty good. Spellbound's good, yeah, with yeah. Gregory and Ingrid. Yep. I, I think um, uh, Suspicion's great. Cary Grant in a very, you know, a very sinister performance. You don't often see him in that yep. type of role. He's great. You know, when he carries the, the milk up and there's like a light bulb in the yeah. glass or whatever because yeah. she thinks it's poisoned. So, yeah, there's a scene where it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a um, fundamental part of the film. It's like building to a sort of climactic sort Yeah. Of, and this this... Milk is carried up the stairs, yeah. a few flights, and the camera follows him from the bottom to the top, and the whole time Hitchcock put a light bulb inside yeah, it, yeah. so it would glow. Glow, so we think it's poisoned. Yeah. And I, I know he, he there's a Hollywood ending, but he, he wanted it to be much darker ending, but they wouldn't let him. It yeah. would have been fascinating to see what his version would have been of that in no the doubt. end. You know, I haven't seen um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. The, I haven't seen that either. No, actually, that's another Reading one up seen. on it, it's one I definitely want to see. Yeah. Because other than that, the only other actual comedy he made was The Trouble with Harry. Mm. But that in itself is a black comedy. Like Very it much is, so. It's a Hitchcock story. It's a black coffee, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but to know he made like just an out-and-out out screwball comedy. Yeah. That intrigues me. I'll have to see it. We know Hitch's famous humour. I'll be fascinated to see that. You once told me that actors were cattle to be shoved about. I wonder if you'd care to enlarge on that. You mean you want to make them larger cattle than they are? No, no. Well, uh, I don't, that's really a joke. But um, they are children, you know, and uh, uh, invariably the problem one always has with actors is uh, coping with their ego. And the post-war Hollywood years were 1945 to 53. These are very interesting years. Yeah. Uh, what have we got here? We've got Notorious. We've got The Paradigm Case, which was a courtroom drama with Gregory Peck. You have Rope. Now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Under Capricorn, which was set in Australia. Yes. Very weird. He considers it his worst film. He does. Uh, Stage Fright, Strangers on the Train, and I Confess. So once again, tight little group. Very tasty. Uh, it is. I have not seen all of these, to be honest with you, but some stand out to me. What in there would you pick? Or I would say the two that jump out at me, well, there's three, but I'd yep. say I reckon the two best films yep. in that is Notorious and Strangers on a Train. Mm -hmm. But I, I know you'll probably agree with me here, and I think a lot of people will like this. Mm. Rope, I have a very soft spot. Huge soft spot. For Rope. But I would say Strangers on a Train, Notorious. What about you? Yeah, so I think Strangers on a Train is uh, the best film of the lot. But yeah. ro Rope is the go-to. I can't get away from that film. It's just something about it. I think my film school days, it's one I went to because mm. it's a masterclass in filmmaking. It's great, which he didn't rate. He, Hitch, he thought it was like a failed experiment. Which, which is incredible to think about. Me. If you've never seen Rope, it is a one-shot film, all in an apartment. Back then, what uh, a reel of film would take about 10 minutes. Yeah, it's yeah, So it's a group of 10-minute long shots all stitched together fairly seamlessly. Yeah. About two guys based on the Leopold and Loeb serial killers in real life that um, killed a classmate, hit him in a tea chest, <laughs> and then invited a whole lot of people around to eat dinner off the chest. Yeah, his you know? parents. It's yeah. really twisted. It's actually... I'm staggered he made that in 1948. Like, this is a guy pushing every yeah, envelope he could. And it's staggering. It's it, it was a lost film for yeah. many years. And um, yeah, I don't know. Jimmy Stewart is like my favorite all-time actor. Love, yeah. So that's probably why I used to gravitate to it, towards it a lot. I think the, the penny drop moment for him when he realizes what's going on is phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah, when he sees the rope. Is it when he sees the rope? Is that the moment? Yeah, it's more, you know, he walks across the room. That's right, yeah. Pauses, turns around. And just everything clicks into place. That's right. Because they're acting suspiciously. He's more watching their interaction with each other. Yeah. One's starting to get a little bit paranoid. The other one's getting cocky. Yeah. John Dahl is yeah. amazing in that yeah. film. And then his, his, Jimmy Stewart's monologue at the end is classic. Like, he's amazing. It is. Yeah. Uh, he's such a great actor. Yeah. He's uh, one, of the, one of the greats. He is. Uh, screenplay was written by Hume Cronin. Wow. Okay. And he was married to Jessica Tandy. Ah, Jessica. Hume Cronin from Cocoon. Wow. <laughs> amongst, amongst many others. Jessica would later feature in Hitchcock, wouldn't she? Yes. Yes. In The Birds. Indeed. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Back when she looks younger. <laughs> but yeah, but Strangers on a Train, it is one hell of an atmospheric film. It's very sinister. Strangers on a Train is amazing. And it kind of takes that 
the, the Agatha Christie tropes yeah. and kind of Hitchcockifies them. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to blend. It's very much him, but it, it takes something else and makes it his own. For sure. But that's an amazing film. Anything else in there you want to touch upon? Under Under Capricorn, I've never seen. I've never seen Under Capricorn. Never seemed. I'll probably watch it one day as an oddity. I just I'm curious, but I never decided to go I there. I will absolutely watch it. One because I love Australian cinema. I love watching international artists come to Australia. Yeah. Even though he didn't, I don't think he came to Australia. I don't think he one. would have. But I love seeing films set in Australia. I like watching others, you know, come in and mm. their interpretation of what we are. Yeah. So this one just intrigues me. The fact he consider consider is worse. Worst. I have to see it now. And he's got it's got Joseph Cotton, isn't it? Yeah, Ingrid Berman. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a, I love Joseph Cotton, yeah. so I'd definitely say that. I think Notorious. I think Notorious is probably from a film critic critical perspective, is probably always been considered one of his best films. I think that's an amazing film. Um, love it. it. It's. I think it's probably risen a bit in stature, but I'd say that's probably that'd be top tenner for me. Yeah, you know what? Many people don't talk about with Hitchcock, which I think is like the elephant in the room is the fact that he chooses his titles so well. Oh yeah, they're iconic. Yeah, like mm. almost every film he's made, you could say the title, not know it's Hitchcock, yeah. but the second you hear it, you're like, yeah, that's a Hitchcock. The, the film. Hitchcock, notorious. Well, yeah, I know, amazing title, yeah. Rope, notorious, yeah. Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, Family Plot, like, That's right. These are all Genius. Hitchcocky. Yeah. North by Northwest. Yes. <laughs> Which actually, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for now, let's uh, let's take some time to hear about what's going on up at Screen Realm. We'll throw it to Guillermo. What's happening, everybody? Guillermo here from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favourite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. Hope everyone's doing okay out there during this crazy time. Let's get straight into just a little bit of what we've covered on the website in the past week. The Saint is getting a reboot and is going to be starring Chris Pine. Now, this reboot has actually been in the work for a few years. Another Chris, Chris Pratt, was actually supposed to star in this a few years ago, but that didn't end up coming to fruition. This new film will be directed by Dexter Fletcher, whose credits include Eddie the Eagle, Rocketman, and he was brought in to finish Bohemian Rhapsody when things fall apart with director Brian Singer. Paramount Pictures is behind this one and they're eyeing a potential franchise with The Saint. It could be their second franchise starring Pine since Star Trek is still going on and that fourth film is in development and actually has been for quite some time now. And we're getting a new Hunger Games movie. That's right, Lionsgate has announced that it will adapt the next novel from Hunger Games author Suzanne Collins and is going to be called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This will be taking place in the Hunger Games universe, albeit years before we met Katniss Everdeen. The film will focus on Coriolanus Snow at age 18, years before he would become the tyrannical president of Pan Am. Young Coriolanus is handsome and charming, and though the Snow family has fallen on hard times, he sees a chance for a change in his fortunes when he is chosen to be a mentor for the 10th Hunger Games, only to have his elation dashed when he is assigned to mentor the girl tribute from impoverished District 12. At the helm will be Francis Lawrence, who directed Hunger Games movies Catching Fire, Mockingjay Part 1 and Mockingjay Part 2. Francis Lawrence also directed I Am Legend and Jennifer Lawrence thriller Red Sparrow. Considering that the four Hunger Games movies made almost $3 billion worldwide combined, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Lionsgate wants to keep this thing going. The sequel to Venom has its official title and a brand new release date. Get ready for Venom! Let There Be Carnage. Yes, that is the title. I still don't know whether I think it's absolutely ridiculous or kind of cheesy fun. Let There Be Carnage, of course, places the spotlight on the villain that we were introduced to at the end of the first film. Carnage, aka Cletus Cassidy, is played by Woody Harrelson. A new release date for the sequel has also been announced. Yes, we all thought that Sony's announcement earlier this month that it would be sticking with the October release date was too good to be true, and it was. The new US release date, June 25th, 2021. Netflix has paid a whopping $20 million to acquire the worldwide distribution rights to a Melissa McCarthy film. The streaming giant took on the likes of Lionsgate, Sony 3000 and 101 Studios in the competition to get the rights to The Starling, a drama starring McCarthy, Kevin Kline, Chris O'Dowd and Timothy Oliphant. It's an expensive get and one that shows big confidence from Netflix, especially since they hadn't seen the finished product. The deal was made solely off a screenplay and a four minute promo reel. The Starling will have McCarthy and O'Dowd playing a married couple who have suffered a tragedy, Trying to get the relationship back on track proves difficult with their individual ways of dealing with grief. 
He heads off to deal in recovery while she attempts to deal in the real world, building a garden in their backyard. She finds herself being attacked repeatedly by a starling that has built a nearby nest. Kevin Klein plays a psychiatric turned veterinarian who tries to help her with the bird issue and ends up making a bigger impact on her life. The film is directed by Ted Melfi, whose credits include Feel Good Pictures, St. Vincent, and Hidden Figures, the latter of which was quite the hit and earned three Oscar nominations. So fingers crossed it's money well spent by Netflix. $20 million, it's a hell of a lot. There's a One Punch Man movie on the way. Yes, the beloved manga series is getting a live action film adaptation from Sony Pictures. Set to write the film are Scott Rosenberg and Jeff Pinkner, who have co-written Sony hits Venom, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, and Jumanji The Next Level. The general plot follows a superhero with the ability to take down any opponent with just a single punch. Bored by the challenge, he seeks to find an opponent worthy enough to take him on in his fight against evil. Given how popular this IP is, Sony is understandably keen on getting this made as soon as possible and are reportedly eyeing it as a potential franchise. Of course they are. And make sure you also jump on ScreenRealm.com for the Netflix May 2020 release schedule. We're all of Netflix release dates for the month of May, so you need to jump on and check it out because hey, Streaming is what we're going to be doing for the next month, probably. And just before I head off, I'm going to mention my three favorite films by the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho, Vertigo, and Rope. All phenomenal films, showcasing fantastic direction, incredible performances, and all-around highly influential filmmaking. Rope, I think, is too often overlooked when it comes to Hitchcock's films. It's absolutely fantastic, and for 1948, the fact that it's trying to look like one long take, it's pretty incredible on a technical level as well. That's it for me, guys. Be sure to follow Screen Realm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all that jazz. See you later. that for a tune oh absolute banger <laughs> that song is called Gimme No More by a Brazilian artist called Dexter 
a trip hop reworking of the Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> Hitch would have loved it. Oh, do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, it's kind of the most disrespectful thing we've probably done on this episode. No, nah, I don't wonder what he would have thought. <laughs> but I think that's a fitting track to lead us into the peak years, 1954 to 64. Mm. Now we're in your element, mate. We're in maybe the greatest run of films ever done by a director. I think you're right. So they're called the peak years for good reason. Check out these films. Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Wrong Man, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie. It's insane. <laughs> I'm lost for words. Yeah. I mean, they're considered bonafide classic. Any filmmaker would absolutely kill to have an entire career made up of all those films. Oh, easy. But for this to just represent like a quarter of your work? It's staggering. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I can't fault any of these films. No. And obviously the glaring film amongst all that is Psycho. Mm. Uh, but if you want to hear some Psycho banter and rhetoric, go back and listen to our Psycho episode of the Franchise Podcast uh, and you're going to hear a good hour's worth of us just ripping through that one and uh, having Qu- a good time. Quality banter. So we can kind of skip Psycho for the benefit of this. And I think Adam is going to talk about it a bit mm. later anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, where do we start with this? Well, <laughs> yeah, far out. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you my favorite from that era. I reckon I know it. Would be North by Northwest. Yep. That's my favorite. That's probably my favorite Hitchcock film. I'm not, I reckon it's his two top four best films. I don't know if it's, there might be one or two that pip it for the best, but that's my favourite. Endless amounts of entertainment, shows a more lighthearted, adventurous side yep. of Hitch. Uh, I mean, where do you begin, man? I mean, Vertigo. So do you, here's a question. Sight and Sound, the respected Sight and Sound, mm. have this at number one of their greatest films of all time. Pipping Citizen Kane, what do you think of that? Do you think uh, that's fair? No. I would agree with you. I think, look. This is a, this is the second most controversial thing or outrageous thing I've said on this show. I think Vertigo is overrated. Wow. Okay. I think it's a great film. Yep. I rewatched it last week to prepare for this, and I recognise it is great. I think it's deep. It's layered. It's textured. It's all of the above. But, but <laughs> I don't think it is that great a film. I think. Wow. I don't know. It just doesn't play too well for me. Okay. Just doesn't feel. Just doesn't pull you in. The story. I mean, I know there's going to be people listening to this that are going to say, you just don't understand the film or you haven't watched it properly and all that kind of stuff. I've watched it many times. I put it on for enjoyment. Yeah. But it's it's a slog. It's a it's a slow burn. And I usually like slow burn films. It's not a... It's Yeah, it's a slow pace, isn't it? Yeah. It's meditative. Actually, I heard an interview a little while ago from Scorsese talking about Vertigo. He's obsessed with it. Well, he is, but I was fascinated to find out that what he rates it for is not so much an enjoyment level, it's a technical level. Yeah, okay. And I remember him saying that when he first saw the film, he just couldn't make sense of it. Mm. Like, you know, he was a teenager, went with his mates to the cinemas, and it just made no sense. And it was a long time before he revisited, which I find fascinating because that's what I'm getting at. I think the story's so far-fetched, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. There are some plot holes. Like, I, I, just the opening scene, you know, when they're chasing the guy across the roof yep. and he's hanging on the yep. edge, uh, and it just, the copper dies yep. and then it just fades out and you just how like, does he get off? how does he get off yeah. yeah like how does it this doesn't explain it so i don't know if it's just like a bold or he was just like oh stuff it look at it when you watch that sequence you almost feel like it's gonna cut to a dream sequence like you know, yeah it's like gonna, he's dreaming it's gonna fade into him waking up or having a, the night sweats or something yeah. like that but exactly right right yeah. off the bat there's a there's a gaping <laughs> plot hole uh but you know look you know it is a great film do you know, who do you think is the strongest performer? Who is your favourite performance in that film? In Vertigo? Yeah. Oh, it has to... I mean, I think it's... I actually think it's Jimmy's best performance. Do you? I do. I don't. But that's, <laughs> another, that's another story. I think it's... I've forgotten her name. The woman that plays more. Uh, Barbara... Yes. Barbara Del Gel- yes, Getters. Yes, from Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. She's fantastic. She is... To me, she's the glue in that film. Yeah. She... Oh, she's gorgeous. One. Yeah. She's not a starlet. Um, not Kim. But she's obsessed with... <laughs> You know, this man who has, he's oblivious to he's her. He's no interest in her. Yeah. yeah. And I find it a really heartbreaking, you know, dynamic. Absolutely. Particularly there's a scene where she drives past his house and Kim Novak walks out the door. Nothing happened between them, but the assumption is made that maybe it did. Maybe it did. It just broke my heart watching yeah. that. And yeah, they were previously engaged and yeah. Mm. Mm, sorry, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> I did love the, um, you know, the trippy sequence where he sort of, you know, goes into animated oh, know, it's psychedelics. Awesome. Yeah, see, and it's got an incredible score. Oh, that's an, I, I'm on the record here. 
I don't think it's the greatest film of all time. You know what I think is the greatest. But I could, if if someone said that's the number one and will be for the next ten years, like sight and sound, I can stomach that. It's not my favorite Hitchcock film, but I can see why people think it's his best. Yeah, it's not his most enjoyable, and which is one thing we love about Hitchcock is that you know we can talk about him from a, a film critical you know mm. perspective, historical perspective, incredibly influential. But his films are really just on a base level, incredibly entertaining. Yeah. That's probably not one of his most entertaining in that respect. Mm. But it is technically, yeah, it's an amazing film. I could pay it as his best. It's probably the one you can you can deconstruct or yeah. study the most. That's right. Uh, my, I think his best film is Rear Window. Yeah. So I think I could pay that too. I know we, we, we have a mutual friend who doesn't agree. <laughs> I just think it's perfection. It is it's brilliant. Know, so much about it. I also heard him in an interview talk about that's his proudest achievement technically. Yeah, it's an amazing technical achievement. The yeah. way he shot it, the set. Oh, that was the first time. I remember even watching that at seven or eight. And you could tell that someone made that. Do you know what I mean? Like that was someone's voice. Yep. Um, incredible vision. And it's a very apt title for today's day and age of isolation and, and oh, whatnot. Because it's an isolation movie. Everyone's got their cameras out. <laughs> That's right. Very voyeuristic. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it, it scared me as a kid. The Raymond Burr stuff in the final act. Oh, yeah, with yeah. The flash The bulb. flash bulb's amazing. What yeah. a piece of uh It's cinema. so tense. Yeah. Yeah. But the one film I think here for me that I also I love the birds yeah. just because he only ever made two horror films. He talked about the birds, yeah. He made two horror films yeah. back to back. The birds is amazing. I need yes, we need to talk about the birds. All right, we'll stop and we'll do that <laughs> right now. We'll talk about the birds. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the birds is phenomenal. Actually, it took me a while to appreciate the birds. I first didn't enjoy. It. I think I saw it at school. Which you should never watch a film like that at school in no. a class. It ruins it. But the birds is phenomenal. Well, narratively, it's so simple. Yeah. Right, but technically it's yeah. just incredible. And the ending. Like, it's actually incredible. I love the ambiguity of the ending. You don't know whether it's her, yeah. whether or not they're going to attack again. It's a phenomenal film, The Birds. I think so too. And I think he got that taste for the horror yeah. when he did Psycho. That's freaky, And yeah. then to come off the back of that and do another horror That's film. That's right. Because I think it's a horror. It is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, with the scene where Jessica Tandy rocks up to the farmer's house and it flashes in and he's missing his eyes. Oh my, that, that is, is brutal. Nightmare inducing. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Slumped on the floor. Yeah, that's oh my brutal God. for yeah. 63. Um, but just those iconic images of like the, the jungle gym in the playground, yeah. birds. And the fa- oh, that scene's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. so much about it. Uh, I think even in today's day and age, you know, we can see all the old tricks of filmmaking, but I think they're still effective. You know, the scenes yeah. where in the phone booth when they're all coming at him, like, that's a, That's an amazing haunting. scene. And yeah. if you can watch this one in the highest resolution possible, I think it's just yeah. amplified. Yeah. But that is a good one. That's but what I was getting at earlier is <laughs> I think the most underrated one in the whole bunch is Marnie. You do think that's underrated, do I love Marnie. I actually think it, well, it's obviously one of Hitch's lesser known films. Yes. To the average moviegoer. Yeah. Uh, less celebrated anyway. But it was his first truly psychological thriller. It is. So it has the has the presence of a drama. But it deals with all this mental illness and... He's you know, tackling some. And he tackles a lot yeah. of themes in this one. Uh, what else? Like suppressed childhood trauma, you know, all of this stuff. Very reminiscent of The Dressmaker. We talked about that we recently, did. right? Yeah. The Australian film with Kate Winslet, which takes a very similar trajectory. Because, mm. you know, spoiler alert, all turns out that you know she's returned and it's this traumatic experience she has as a child that has guided the entire narrative and we've not known it until the very end. Yeah. Marnie works on a very similar way and your favourite? Sean. It's great to, can I just, it's great to see Bond era Sean, peak Bond era Sean in a different film. Yeah. Particularly Hitchcock. Are you surprised he wasn't in more Hitchcock films? I kind of am, yeah. Mm. He would have been a great candidate for Torn Curtain. I mean, I love Paul, obviously, but he would have been great (laughs) in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to Marnie because it's the film that everyone should check out because it is a, it's a different Hitchcock film. Marnie's a great film. The, you know, he, the original writer, he fired because um, they didn't want to do the, the rape scene. Yep. And then he got they, they didn't want to do it and the writer got fired and Hitchcock basically was like, that's the reason I want to do the film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when Psycho was made, a man was arrested for murder in Los Angeles. And he had confessed to killing three women. The last murder he committed, he said, was influenced by the fact that he had just seen Psycho. 
So naturally the newspapers got on to me and asked for my comment. And I said, what film did he see when he murdered the second woman? <laughs> and am I to assume that when he murdered the first woman, he had just finished drinking a glass of milk? <laughs> It is Adam here from Adam's Just Seen. And when Glenn asked me to talk about Hitch, I was a bit iffy. I'm kind of like, okay, what do I have to say about Hitch? And I thought not a lot, um, because I have no desire to be pretentious about uh, my kind of, you know, critical accolades. I don't revisit Hitch's work that much. I don't um, go back to older films. Um, I've always just gravitated towards the movies of my childhood, uh, really films of the 80s. and. Movies of the 70s, you know, um, that I found probably the best era of film. And the reason why I found that the best era of film, because those movies were so edgy. So circling back, the reason why I actually do like Alfred Hitchcock is because he made movies edgy. So I went back and I rewatched Psycho, uh, which is, you know, a masterpiece and an excellent film. But I just think, you know, pro like post-censorship code, Hitch was pushing buttons here and he knew that films could be violent, that they could be sexy, that they could be dangerous, they could be terrifying. And so I think that, you know, there is so much of cinema that is indebted to Hitch. Uh, and I think that I guess all of the cool movies that I dig, especially the slick kind of modern thriller, you know, movies by David Fincher, things like Seven, things like Silence of the Lambs, like, I mean, these movies wouldn't exist if Hitch didn't do his thing. So I guess that I'm just eternally indebted to the man. Um, and I just think that too as well that he, is a storyteller first and foremost, this voyeuristic thing that he does, this way that he makes the camera your eyes and he wants you to, you know, to push you into these uncomfortable places has been so influential on so many kind of formerly great directors. And those are often the filmmakers that I gravitate towards. I mean, I can, I can handle anyone, I like anyone, but I mean, I really, my favourite filmmakers are always those kind of like keenly intelligent, observational directors, uh, locked off, you know, cinematography, those elements and that is all in the DNA of Hitch so yeah so I um, am probably going to go on a great Hitch binge after this and that's what these kind of shows are about they're about finding out you know or revisiting the things that you'd forgotten about so thanks to Glenn and the team for getting me back on the Hitch bandwagon and check out Psycho if you haven't don't watch the Gus Van Sant uh, remake shot for shot remake which is I will actually do because it's a curio and it's bizarre and it's got a batshit crazy performance by uh, by Vince, Vince Vaughn, uh, <laughs> incredibly strange, so check that one out too, so, but yeah, so thanks boys for getting me back on the Hitch bandwagon, that's all from me this week. Okay, let's talk about movies that were inspired or influenced by Hitchcock, can you name any off the top of your head? Well, where to begin, I mean, every film, every every film ever made, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, let's go, Disturbia is one that just comes to mind, it's basically Rear Window with Shire, uh, obviously the entire filmography of Brian De Palma. I mean, you know, everything, everything, uh, Mulholland and, Drive. Yeah. Or in that sense too, all the Jello films, yeah. or Jello, however you want to say it. You know, De Palma is obviously influenced by Jello, Jello influenced mainly by Hitchcock. A lot of people will take me to task on that. <laughs> uh, what about Throw, Throw Mama from the Train? That's like the, uh, that. the, the remake of Strangers on the Train directed by Danny DeVito, Billy Crystal. Wow. Very funny film. <laughs> Anne Ramsey from Goonies is in that one. Yeah. Quite an atmospheric film. A High Anxiety, the Mel Brooks film. Mel Brooks. Which obviously, that's a reference to Vertigo. Mm. Uh, great reference to Vertigo. Mm, that that's is a great hilarious reference. title. Yeah. The film is a piss take on everything Hitchcock. Dead Again, the Kenneth Branagh film with Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh. I have not seen that. It's great. It's all about reincarnation. Uh, scissors play a very big motive in it, which Hitchcock has you know, broken out in, in the past. Yes. Indeed. Derek Jacobi's in it. Well, I imagine okay. he would be a very Hitchcockian kind of actor had yeah. had Hitchcock considered him. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a film from Germany called A Short Film About Love. I've heard about that. Which I love, and that's sort of a rear window okay. take. It's part of a double feature. There's another one called A Short Film About Death. Wow. Okay. Which is a very dark film. Mm. Uh, Mission Impossible 2. Did you know that's a loose reworking of Notorious? Are you kidding? No. I did. How did I not pick that up? Yeah. Wow. Which is interesting because the first Mission Impossible... Hollywood film was directed by Brian De Palma. I was too. But this one was John Woo. Yeah, and probably with less impressive results, but still. <laughs> Mission Impossible 2, all shot in Sydney. Sydney, yeah. yeah. Odd film. Well, Richard Roxburgh is in it, isn't he? Yeah, there's a lot of anyway. mis miscasting <laughs> yeah, going right. on in that one. Yeah. Uh, arguably the worst of that lot. Yeah. Uh, sequels to Hitchcock films, there are so many. Wow. I'm going to reel off some, see how you react to them. Well, clearly you had um, Psycho 2, 3, and 4, <laughs> as well as the Bates Motel, telly movie and TV series, The Birds 2. 
You told me about this, but I haven't seen it. Yes. Uh, Tippi Hedren returns. Does she? Yeah, but it's more of an extended cameo. Okay. It's quite a shit film. Yeah. I think, I think, and I will be corrected by someone out there, Rick Rosenthal from Halloween 2 fame directed that one. When? 70s? No, this is 92. I no, think. wow. Yeah, so wow. Yeah. quite a time. Yeah. Away. <laughs> um, so Tippy made it. <laughs> yes. Um, there's one called Night Train to Munich. Have you heard of that? I have heard of that. That's the sequel to Lady Vanishes. Wow. Yes. What about remakes? Well, Christopher Reeve in Rear Window, go no further. No. Disgraceful. Guy has a wheelchair, let's make a wheelchair movie. that's right. Uh, Psycho. Yeah, of course, with um, Vince. Gus Van Sant. You know, it's an interesting film, terrible film. So bizarre. But it's it's compelling to watch just for the train wreck factor. That's right. And if you do the whole screen by screen comparison, you know, it does fall out of sinking moments, but. It's basically, yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know what he was doing. Anyway. Life Pod. Oh, well. Ron Silver directed that one in 93. It is Lifeboat in Space. (laughs) Everyone trapped on a life pod. A Perfect Murder, which was Dial in for Murder, remake by Andrew Davis of Fugitive fame. Wow. That was with Michael Douglas in 98. Wow. That was a big one at the time. Yeah, that is a big one. So, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. No, I. Well, I mean. The list goes on. I'm I'm not even going to bother reading anymore, but. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. So, the question I want to ask you. What three Hitchcock films would you recommend to a novice? A, a newcomer that's never watched a Hitchcock film, name three that are best going to introduce them to his legacy. Okay. I Yep, I'm ready for this one. I'm going to go uh, Psycho, North by Northwest, and Strangers on a Train would be the three that I would throw to someone. Probably because three they're three of the best. And I think if you don't like those three, you're probably not going to be interested in watching any more of his films. And I think they encapsulate the different aspects of his career. Yep. So I think Stranger on a Train has got that, you know, that murder mystery element, that, that thriller element. It's a little macabre, but it's, mm. it's playful. Then you've got Psycho, which is more of the, oh, the shocker. Um, I suppose, you know, the, the slasher, it's got the plot twists, yep. all that sort of stuff. And then, and it, but it also has those tropes. It's got the, you know, the John Gavin, the leading man. It's got the, the you know, the ambiguous villain. <laughs> and of course it's got the, the women, Yep. And then I would say North by Northwest because that's more of the adventurous, playful mm. Hitchcock. So that's, yep. go, you know, because he used to make adventure films, uh, obviously. And then it's got that real humour. It's bubbly. So they're probably the three. I'd go North by Northwest, Strangers and Psycho. And I think if you've never seen a Hitchcock film, they're a great place to start. And um, I think you would know from those three whether or not you like him. I've chosen my three for the same reason. I think they cover a, a gamut of his work, you know, a broad spectrum of what he does. So I've also done Psycho. Yeah. I think, um, and the other reason I've chosen these is because I think they're very accessible. I think they play out as easy to follow mm. narratives. They're quite streamlined. They're quite snappy. Yeah. Uh, so Psycho, Rear Window and Frenzy for me. Yeah, wow. So I think Frenzy kind of actually touches, as I said before, it touches on a lot of the cheekiness of his earlier films. Mm. Uh, I think Psycho obviously is just sort of a, it's a groundbreaker. Like you recognize a lot of other cinema in it. Absolutely. And Rear Window, because I just think that's his, that's the easy flow movie, that one. Yeah. It's just such an easy film to watch. There's it is. no confusion. There's no complication. It's just Entertaining. Amazing. And it's got peak era Grace Kelly. Bit of Grace. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty much the end of it. Now, if you want to hear us talk a little bit more about Hitchcock, follow our Facebook page because we're going to drop a video there where we sort of elaborate on this discussion a little bit more. Now, before we run, uh, we just want to announce the winner for last week's giveaway. Our mystery prize pack goes to Deborah Smith. Thanks a lot, Deborah. Thanks so much for following and liking our page. That kind of support is exactly what we're after. So thank you so much. I'm going to be in touch and we'll get some juicy mystery prizes to you. Next week, we have a huge show lined up for you. We're going to be presenting the first part of a two-part interview with the legendary Richard Stanley. And we're going to be discussing his brand new film, Color Out of Space, starring Nicolas Cage, which is... One of my favorite films of the last 12 months. Mm. It is an absolute belter. Now, this guy is out of this world. You're not going to believe this interview. Where this guy takes it is, <laughs> it has to be heard to be believed. So make sure you tune in for that one. want to give a massive thanks to Jarrett, Guillermo, and Adam. And without a doubt, Keith. Thanks, mate. This is this is your episode, I reckon. I'm responsible for this, yes. <laughs> so I hope you've had fun. I have, yeah. <laughs> Good. I can keep going. Uh, also, don't forget to catch the Remotely Funny show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. I love what those guys do. 
Another one I want to give a little plug for is called Kerry and Dolly's House Party. That's on Tuesday and Thursday nights at 7.30. Find their Facebook page. It's another one of those quarantine-inspired variety shows, and I think the production on this one's fantastic. So they have huge guests. It is a lot of fun. Make sure you check it out, Kerry and Dolly's House Party. And to sign off, we're going to listen to the real Psycho theme by Bernard Herrmann, uh, because if dubstep and trip-hop is not your thing, maybe this will... Wet your whistle. Just to appease Bernard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> May his soul rest in peace. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks to everyone. We'll see you next week. Good Movie Monday.